Welcome back to Holly's Been Taken. I'm Richard Price. As you recall from the first episode, a group of retired police investigators outlined the moments before and after 10-year-old Holly Peranian was abducted in August 1993, while she stood near the edge of South Shore Drive, a quiet, semi-rural neighborhood in Sturbridge, Massachusetts. The most startling part of that story surrounded a light brown pickup truck driven by a middle-aged white man with facial hair and a hat, who, nearby, slowed to a crawl on Allen Road to leer at two teenage girls as they walked to their mailbox. Fearing for their safety, the girls retreated to the house. When they returned a second time to the mailbox, the man in the pickup reappeared after turning around somewhere down the street. The girls quickly retreated once again. About 200 yards away, Holly stood by a border fence near the end of South Shore Drive, close to Allen Road, waiting for a litter of puppies to emerge from a farmhouse. After the second pass-by, the man disappeared again down Allen Road towards South Shore. When the teen girls walked into the house, one went upstairs and told investigators she saw through a bathroom window the pickup a third time, accelerating past the home and away from South Shore Drive. The driver was looking straight ahead and did not look up our driveway, the teenager told police. The investigators believed the man in the pickup truck turned around at South Shore and eventually kidnapped the Peranian girl. In our opinion, the investigators wrote, no rational person who had the opportunity to visit this site saw how close the cousin's driveway is from the dirt road where Holly Peranian was standing, understood how rural the area is, considered the disturbed and sexually compulsive behavior of the middle-aged looking man in the pickup, noted the movement of his vehicle back and forth, and knew the timing and the extreme rarity of this type of crime in this area, would have a shred of doubt that the man in the pickup is the killer. Who is this man in the pickup? Did he commit this crime as the investigators allege? Is he alive? Is he dead? Does he have a criminal record? Is he in prison? Did he victimize other women and girls? Does he have a family? I spent many hours diving into this angle. I examined public records and interviewed scores of people, including those who were familiar with the investigation but would not speak publicly. Over time, I was able to draw a vivid picture of the man in the pickup truck, including his whereabouts, his past, his personality, his family, and other details. I also created a detailed timeline of the moments before and after Holly's abduction, which reveals new details. I'll tell you what I saw, heard, and discovered during a Zoom call with members of the Peranian family. In the past, investigators did brief the family about the man in the pickup truck, including his name and some background history. During my call with them, they learned more, some they were familiar with, but other portions they heard for the first time. Whether or not you're familiar with this case, you will hear details never revealed before. This is also the first time the Peranian family has publicly discussed this angle. One point, I decided not to reveal the man in the pickup truck's name in this episode because the Holly Peranian case remains active and open. He has never been charged or publicly identified by the district attorney as a person of interest. Under the eyes of the law, he is innocent unless proven guilty in a court of law. 
I'm also withholding some details that, if revealed, could damage the investigation. Okay, let's return to the Zoom call with Carla Jackman, Holly's aunt, Leah Jolin, her older cousin, and Julie Gerning, Holly's younger cousin. As a reminder, those sensitive to disturbing content should not tune in. There will be details about abduction and murder, which is distressing. This story could be harrowing and haunting to some, so please keep that in mind. The first thing I want to do is I, I want to go back to August 5th, 1993, hours after Holly was kidnapped, to a spot not far from where she disappeared. Search teams were being formed. Police had word to be on the lookout for a brown pickup truck that may have been involved in the disappearance. One police officer was called to the Sturbridge scene mid-afternoon to aid in the initial investigation when he spotted a truck that fit the description. The officer turned on his blue lights and the truck, a junky-looking 1982 brown Chevy CK 4x2 pickup with a cap over its bed, pulled over on New Boston Road, north of Route 20, and minutes from the scene of the disappearance. The officer called his location to the dispatcher, stepped out of his cruiser, and approached the driver's side of the truck, knowing it fit the description. The two spoke, but the driver did not appear nervous, agitated, or paranoid, nor did he shy from eye contact. The officer took his license and registration and observed the back bed of the truck through the cab's panel windows. Nothing appeared askew, nor did he see anything suspicious like zip ties, firearms, or rope. He looked at the truck's body, but didn't see any damage that indicated a recent accident. And the officer radioed in the, the license information and waited. At one point, a backup cruiser arrived. Minutes later, the dispatcher radioed back that the license was active, and the officer, with no reason to hold the man in the pickup, sent him on his way. The man on the police report was of Sturbridge. It was just a routine traffic stop with a truck that fit the description, but at that point in time, there certainly were a lot of old pickup trucks on the road at, at that point. I mean, it could have been a coincidence. And besides, at that moment, the missing child report was just breaking. Authorities were gearing up for what was going to be a long day combing the area of Allen Road and South Shore Drive. So from this point on, I'm going to just refer to him as the man in the truck, since he's never been charged with this crime, nor is he listed as a registered sex offender. Plus, he did not send any signal to officers that implied any guilt at all at that particular moment. But there's more to the story. The man in the truck made a name for himself over the years in central Massachusetts, including Western and surrounding communities. In the 1990s, his physique was kind of tall. He was round in the middle, broad shoulders, muscular legs. You could tell just by looking at him that he would not injure easily in a fight. One person described him as, quote, someone you would not push too hard or he would snap and wouldn't stop until something really bad happens. Cops who knew him said he never played by the rules, but he was lucky when he needed it. 
Over the years, the man in the truck accumulated 34 criminal cases in Massachusetts, a number that some seasoned law enforcement officers refer to as average. 18 are vehicle related, operating with a suspended license, operating an uninsured motor vehicle, number plate violation to conceal ID, registration not in possession, and forging a misuse of a motor vehicle document. But he also faced a judge for other offenses, none involving a minor, disorderly conduct, larceny over $250, assault and battery, payment for sex, larceny from a person, larceny by check, uttering a false check, forgery of a document, identity theft, and threat to commit a crime. A retired police officer told me the man in the truck was observed at a Massachusetts library in 1999 surfing porn websites. When the officer arrived, our subject was arrested for disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. He served time in a house of corrections for some of the offenses I mentioned. I feel like I did know that he was arrested for looking at porn in a library. That's Carla Jackman, Holly's aunt. I feel like I knew that. But when he wasn't in trouble with the law, he struggled to hold down a job because he was arrogant and couldn't take orders from a supervisor. Skilled in construction and carpentry, he would often argue with fellow workers. But when he did earn a paycheck, he would often blow it at strip clubs or on prostitutes, his ex-wife told me. He was a security guard at the now defunct Stevens Linden Mill in Dudley for a time. Still, he was let go because he used the company phone lines to make uh, sex-related 1-900 calls. Before the internet, 900 calls were popular money-making schemes in the 1980s to early 90s. Ads invited their target market to dial a phone number with a 900 area code, which included an add-on charge to their phone bill of a fixed amount per minute. His ex-wife said he once ran up a $400 phone bill at home when they were married. The two went to therapy, and a counselor diagnosed him as a sex addict. And the couple lived in a particular apartment building in central Massachusetts. Their neighbors were a 17-year-old pregnant girl and her 18-year-old husband. One night, the husband knocked on the door, waving a letter by the man in the truck, allegedly written to the girl. It read that he wanted to get to know her better and that he wanted to touch her. One day soon after, when our man in question stepped out of his car, when he got home, the 18-year-old husband was waiting and allegedly threw a hammer that missed our subject's head by inches. When I asked his ex if she ever knew him to approach other underage girls, she replied that the 17-year-old neighbor was the youngest the ex was aware of and that she did not believe he would chase a girl as young as 10. He preferred older teens, she told me but he did like thin blondes. Holly Peranian had blonde hair, I said. And the ex-wife went silent. I have a question. It kind of made me think about the two teen girls that were um, harassed. Were either of them at the time blonde? Yeah, I'm not okay. sure cousin, but- uh... That's Holly's older cousin, Leah Jolin. Was blonde, because blonde.
But our subject grew up to appreciate hunting and fishing, especially hunting. He would swim in the summer at Dean Pond, which if you're familiar with Brimfield, it's a rustic recreation spot not far from where Holly Perini was found. His former wife didn't know where he liked to hunt, but he seemed to be familiar with the Brimfield area. And the man in the truck was known to disappear from home for stretches without an explanation. Once after the birth of his daughter, his ex-wife was recuperating in the hospital for three days and her subject didn't reappear until she was discharged. When the ex confronted him, he first gaslighted her, acting like it's not a big deal. Then he said, that's your punishment for having a girl. He doesn't have a conscience, his former wife told me. Here are two flies in the ointment about, about this. The ex-wife said he drove a dark brown pickup and always knew him as clean shaven. The two teen girls who were confronted said the truck was white or tan and the driver had facial hair. In the summer of 1993, after he split with his wife, he found himself in a familiar predicament, unemployment. He shared his Sturbridge apartment with his 76-year-old mother, who worked in the laundry room at the public house in Sturbridge. She had an easygoing personality and didn't question her wayward son when he disappeared for stretches of time. On August 5th, 1993, the day Holly was abducted, our subject was in his truck mid-afternoon when he spotted a cement mixer lumbering down the road. He decided to follow it, hoping it would lead to a job site where he could introduce himself to a supervisor. Okay, so that was when he was stopped by a police officer and then eventually sent on his way. Here's the kicker. His license wasn't current. Someone made an error. If the police caught it, they would have detained him. So here's the rest of that story. Six days after Holly disappeared on August 11 in Southbridge, Massachusetts, confirmed by additional traffic records, records I obtained, the man in the truck was stopped and issued a citation for driving with a suspended license. On August 14, the Sturbridge police received a phone call from the off-duty Southbridge cop who wrote that ticket and lived in Sturbridge, about a quarter of a mile away from where the man in the truck was living, reporting that he spotted the pickup truck again on New Boston Road, driven by the same man. The Sturbridge police discovered after another computer search, that the license was indeed suspended when the August 5th stop was made. A Sturbridge officer then mailed a citation to the driver for the offense. So the big question is, how could this mistake have happened? And it's hard to say. Perhaps the dispatcher erred, or the problem might have been at the Registry of Motor Vehicles, well known to hardened Massachusetts residents and watchdogs for its error-prone and bureaucratic ways. 
Perhaps that day the database might not have been current or there was a data entry screw up of some kind. One expert I, I spoke to said back then, if a dispatcher ran the license number, they might get a different result than if they ran it under a name and a date of birth. That to me might be the most logical answer is that when he was stopped on August 5th, they might've ran it under say the license number and it came back as active, but if they ran it under his name and date of birth, it might've come back as suspended. Is any of this familiar to you? Like this, this whole narrative I told you about the police stopping the truck and that they made a mistake with the license. Is that, is that not heard that before? You have heard that before. Okay. I don't know who I heard that from, but what could it, did you, have you known that for a while? I'm wondering if you had told me that before. No, I never, I didn't tell you that. I did know that he was stopped and they let him go. And then they realized his, his, his license was not valid after the fact. I, I did hear that, but I don't remember where, who I heard it from. When was he pulled over? August 5th, he was pulled over the day. Yeah, what time was he pulled over? It was midday. It was mid-afternoon. Uh, it was, so it was probably sometime between two and three o'clock. I don't know precisely when. I was not able to get the police log that showed when he was actually stopped. Before we continue, here is a call to action. The Peranian family needs your help. If you or someone you know has information surrounding the abduction or homicide of Holly Peranian, no matter how seemingly inconsequential, please contact the Hampton District Attorney's Office in Springfield, Massachusetts. The website is hamptonda.com. You may also call the Massachusetts State Police Detective Unit at 413-505-5946 or the State Police Unresolved Cases Unit at 855-627-6583. You can also text the word SOLVE to 274-637 from your cell phone. You can also find all of this info plus links in the podcast episode description. So here's another kicker. According to two sources, a warrant was eventually served to search the truck. Are you you're familiar with that part? No? Okay. I'm not sure how much time passed since the day Holly disappeared, but both sources said it was much, much later. And when the search was completed, no evidence was discovered. We know a person was driving a pickup that resembled the one witnessed by the teen girls on the day of the abduction. But we don't know if it's the same. So we know pickup trucks are ubiquitous, even brown ones. However, as the retired investigators have said on their website, at helpholly.com website, they said given the rural nature of the area and the low crime rates, it would seem to them 
that the person in a tan pickup who harassed the teen girls is also responsible for Holly's abduction. Break down the time from when Holly and Zach left the cottage in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, to when Rick, Holly's dad, called the police. Thanks to the retired investigators, we have a series of points that will help us not only know where people were, but also the window of opportunity for the abduction. What I'd like to do is go through the timeline of what happened on August 5th. And there were a number of aha moments when I built this that I want to share with you. There are a few pieces here, though, that I think really kind of cement the timeline here. The first one was from the incident report, which said that the dispatcher notified a patrol officer to go to the scene at 12.52 p.m. The other piece is that there were two witnesses One saw Holly at the fence, quote, close to noon. And the second is a man heading home for lunch and spots the Peranian brothers shortly after 12. So here's three pieces that kind of help us. The the, um, patrol officer being dispatched at 12.52 p.m. is our anchor. The other two pieces kind of give us a little bit of a sense of where everything else falls into place. The initial police report also said that Rick sent his boys to go looking for their sister at 12.15 p.m. When I ran the timeline, there was no way that could have that fit. And I thought it was, you know, there was a lot of anxiety going on. He was extremely stressed at the time. He just couldn't, he just couldn't get his bearings on straight at the moment. But when I pulled together the timeline, I actually came up with something very interesting I want to share with you, too, that I think pieces it together. One of, one of the things that was mentioned was that Rick was in the cottage and he was watching a TV show. I don't think he would have been really into any kind of TV show because they had just come up from the water. And they were going to go see the puppies. And he said, well, don't be long because I'm going to get lunch ready. Yeah. I think he was making like macaroni and cheese or something easy for the kids. Okay. And I don't know why 1215 would seem like a weird time for Andy and Zach to go running back up there. That makes sense to me. Does it? it, When I built this, when I pulled this thing together, um, everything started to shift. According to the Hampton County District Attorney's Office, the report was that Rick last saw Holly at approximately 11.45 a.m. Mm-hmm. So he had said that that's when she and Zach stepped out of the cottage to head over to the St. Jean place. According to how I was able to kind of rework this, it is, this actually makes sense. I had figured out that they had actually left the cottage between 11.35 and 11.40. So it's pretty close to what Rick had told and so Holly and Zach walk out of the cottage to the fence of the St. Jean property. Holly and Zach walk out the door. According to what I had 
to my study, they were probably close to a five minute walk. And I say that because in, in real time, but also taking into account those sh short little kids' legs that Zach had. So he needed a little more time to get where he needed to go. And what I can see, they left around between 11.35 and 11.40 a.m. Between 11.40 and 11.45, they arrive. According to how this falls into place, between 11.45 a.m. and 11.50 a.m., Zach walks back home again. So he was only there for a short period of time. And I know this, as, as I kind of go along, you'll you'll understand why, why this is true. Between 11.50 and 11.55, approximately, Zach sits on the floor next to his dad, who's watching that late morning show. Between 11.50 and 11.59 a.m., which is the, the witness who's, who was there close to noon, a neighbor, as she drives by, spots Holly. And she says, maybe Zach, I'm not sure. By the fence where the sneaker was found. From the way I built this timeline, she thinks maybe Zach, but I don't think that was possible. Zach had to have been back home or almost home at that point. Let me pause briefly to clarify a point. The shortly before noon witness was sure she saw Holly, but unsure if she saw Zach. If my timeline is accurate, she didn't see him. If Zach had returned home by about 11.55 a.m., then I will argue that the shortly before noon witness saw Holly at approximately 11.55 a.m. Between noon and 12.05, Zach and Andy walk back to get their sister. So I'm picturing this. Rick is watching the show, whatever the show was. And then the show ends at noon. And it kind of pulls him out of whatever, whatever it was that he was watching at the time. He realizes that, okay, it's 12 o'clock. The news is coming on. He looks around. He sees Andy. He sees Zach. Doesn't see Holly. Zach, where's your, where's your sister? She's with, she's with the puppies. Andy, take your brother. Go get your sister. Bring her back. I'm going to make lunch. So off they go. So that is sometime between noon and 12.05 p.m. The neighbor and the boys were very close to bearing witness. Very close. But there's something else I want to share with you that given the sight line on South Shore, the boys would actually would have seen the kidnapping about three minutes into their walk because of the way that the way the street is laid out. If they had left at 12.02 p.m., they would have seen the end of Allen Road at 12.05 p.m. But since they didn't witness the crime, then she was taken sometime between 11.55 a.m. and 12.04 p.m. She said nine minutes, that's all. Mm. She said nine minute window. Mm. Between 12.05 and 12.10, which is the shortly after 12, a witness driving on Allen Road heads to lunch with his mom near the Peranian Cottage when he sees the boys looking around at the edge of South Shore. So from what I can see, that that was the period of time they probably, they found the sneaker. Andy probably got instantly alarmed. They were there looking around. 
I'm guessing at the most five minutes. Then they head back. They walk in the door. It's 12.15 p.m. And they show their father the sneaker. And the reason why I think that Rick said 12.15 to the cop originally was because that was the moment where he was aware that something was horribly wrong. So that was the moment that his life changed. So 12.15 kind of got burned in his head right at that moment. It, it, he, it's not possible that he had sent the kids out at 12.15 to find their sister when a witness already said they saw the boys shortly after 12. So it doesn't add up. So they walk back to the house at 12.15. 12.17, they probably jumped in the, in the Jeep and started driving around. They went to the spot. So they arrive at the scene at about 12.18 p.m. 12.19 p.m., they drove over to the St. Jean farmhouse. And Rick knocks on the door and talks to the homeowner there and they get back in the car and they start driving around they start driving up and down allen road but and correct me if i'm wrong they did it in a slow deliberate way right if you're driving up and down allen road looking for somebody who has one sneaker on their foot you're probably stopping at each house trying to look in the side yards, trying to look to see if, if she's somewhere over here, somewhere over there. So they're kind of bumping up Allen Road and then turning around, going back down Allen Road towards South Shore again, perhaps, and doing the same thing again past South Shore, right? Does that make sense? I think they also went on South Shore, South Shore Drive further. That's right. The then they went, then they turned back onto South Shore and went all the way down South Shore doing the same thing once again. So that takes us to 12.50 p.m. We get back to the cottage. I imagine they probably ran in, hoping that she was home at that point, or she was on the dock in the back, or something like that. 12.51, he calls 911. And 12.52, the dispatcher calls the police car. So we only had nine minutes. That's the window, just nine minutes. That's, that is how I see it. This is my theory. The man in the truck, the man that we've been talking about, it would take him 17 minutes to drive from the corner of Allen Road and South Shore Drive to the turnoff at Five Bridge Road. And then about five more minutes, approximately, to drive the outer trail to the clearing. So that means that at approximately 12.20 p.m., they arrive at Five Bridge Road. And I'm speculating that they did not go anywhere else first. They get to the wooded crime scene at 12.25 approximately. So from what I can see, um, between 1225 and 1235, unspeakable things. And roughly around 1240, our guy 
does a three-point turn, and he heads back the way he came in. So he would turn into off of Flybridge Road, and he would take the outer trail, which uh, runs closer to the river, and then banks around to the clearing. And then later, he does a three-point turn and goes back the way he came and gets back onto Firebridge Road and then travels to Route 20 and heads back the way he came. Where was he living at the time? That's Julie Gurning, Holly's younger cousin. He was living on in an apartment that he shared with his mother. She worked at the public house in the laundry room. So I believe what happened then is that he went home. Although only the alleged killer knows this, it is possible, given her personality, that Holly defended herself at some point and the man panicked, then reacted in a compulsive and cowardly moment, fearing that she would turn him in. What happened after the man in the pickup truck allegedly left the clearing is also speculative. However, if it was between 12.30 and 1 p.m., he could have driven back to his Sturbridge rental, knowing his mother was working, and allegedly cleaned himself of evidence. I'm guessing he took a shower, changed his clothes, and allegedly scrubbed the truck of any evidence. Then, noting the time of day, he might have prepared himself lunch before eventually deciding to jump back in the pickup and continue his quest for a construction job. Now, you said when they pulled him over, it was a brown truck. But was it a brown brown or a tan brown? That's a good question. Let me show you. Here's a, here's a picture of a 1982 Chevy pickup. It's not the truck. It is a truck. Now, this is described as brown. And it also has a cap on it. That would, that would fit the description that the girls had said that it being a tan truck. But let's look at it a different way. It came in different sizes. Here's another truck that is dark brown, but has white side is white on the side. Now imagine the first truck with that white cap on top of this truck. And you might get the impression if you were two teenage girls that were suddenly uh, unpleasantly surprised that their memory might say it was kind of a tan truck. So kind of in both scenarios, it's kind of explainable, at least to me. Now, we know that our guy's truck was impounded for a while. The police had a search warrant. So we know, or they know rather, what the truck actually looks like. They took, I'm sure they took photographs that are sitting in the files. So they know exactly the truck looks like. So did the driver of the truck who was stopped midday on August 5th also, also travel up and down Allen Road around noontime? That's the question. And did he admit to seeing Holly on South Shore Drive near Allen Road to investigators? And Carla, you mentioned something. As my interview with the Peranian family continued, Carla revealed this detail about our subject that investigators once told her. Yeah, the t-shirt um, 
the man in the truck described the t-shirt she was wearing and it was not the same t-shirt that was listed in the poster. So only person that really saw her that day would know that, that that t-shirt in the poster was not the same t-shirt she was actually wearing. Okay. So he correctly identified the t-shirt that she was wearing the day she was abducted. Yeah. Was there anything else that uh, the investigator shared with you? Did he, did he tell the investigator that he was on Allen Road near South Shore Drive around noontime that day? I'm assuming he did since he, he said what shirt she was wearing. Mm-hmm. He had to be or else he wouldn't have seen her. Did any of the other people of interest who were interviewed able to correctly identify what Holly was actually wearing that day? I don't think so. Okay. During the summer of 2022, I discovered housing court documents that revealed that the man in the pickup truck was served an eviction notice to vacate his apartment in Massachusetts. I want to share my findings with you and the Peranian family because it reveals, once again, a person who, even in his elder years, is still an apparent threat to women. I want to fast forward to the summer of this year. The man in the truck was served an eviction notice this summer. And the summons was mailed to him, according, I was looking at court documents, ironically on August 5th. <laughs> and it said this, on or about May 17th, 2022, the court document claims that our subject unlawfully touched another individual by placing his hand on the person's back and buttocks and touch the individual inappropriately and without consent. You have also continued to block other residents from entering and or exiting the elevator, making such residents fear for their safety. The man in the truck lives in an apartment building, affordable, uh, affordable housing units for uh, seniors. Uh, It's a nice building. And there are, I would say, probably at least 20 units in that building. He had been accused of getting handsy with uh, female tenants in the elevators and blocking them from leaving the elevator. In the fall, he appeared in a Massachusetts court for a trial to determine if the eviction would stand. I went as a witness. I wanted to see this guy. The morning of the trial, I arrived early at the courthouse and sat on a bench outside the assigned courtroom alongside others scheduled to hear their housing cases before a judge. The man in the pickup truck arrived shortly, sitting tall in a red electric scooter. Despite his apparent mobility limitations, he appeared robust with solid arms large hands, legs, and broad shoulders. He appeared to be in his late 60s with a gray and white receding hairline and long sideburns. He wore a red t-shirt and gray track pants with a gray zip-up sweatshirt draped over the back of the seat. He had a scowl on his face, giving an unapproachable vibe. So his adult daughter accompanied him, but the defendant 
and the attorney representing the building, they decided to attempt to settle in a private room rather than have a trial. So about an hour and a half later, after they uh, went into the private room, um, they came out and the man in the truck agreed to vacate within 90 days unless he violated the terms of the lease agreement again, meaning he would face immediate eviction. I learned that two of his female neighbors were intimidated by him and he made them uncomfortable because one said he often leered at them. So the case was settled and everyone started to go on their way. Our subject and his daughter were headed to the elevator and I rode with them. When we stepped out, I introduced myself to the two. I said I took an interest in today's case, but was interested in hearing the man in the truck side of the story regarding his whereabouts the day Holly disappeared. And the man first stared at me with shock as if in disbelief, like, how did you know I was here? How did you know about this kind of a look? Then his eyes hardened and his expression turned into a stern glare. And it was a glare that it might be interpreted as a leering look if I were a woman. So I said to the man in the pickup truck, I believe you might have some relevant information regarding an unsolved case from August 1993, the Holly Peranian case. He looked at me confused and irritated. The what? He said. The Holly Peranian case, I said. What about it? He said as his daughter looked on. I told him I read a police report that placed him in the area when Holly disappeared. His daughter said his father was not in a good state of mind after a stressful morning in court, and it was not a good time to discuss this. I asked him if I could see him another day. He said no, that he had nothing to do with the case. What did his daughter say when you said, when you mentioned Holly? She, she nodded her head. The only um, thing about is he seems to like older women, not children. Isn't don't people typically have a a, a, somebody, a victim in mind of a certain age? Like they don't switch from. If they like young women, like, you know, teenager, young 20s, they wouldn't go for someone that's 10. Yeah, but who is I street? And like like she said, he drove by back and forth, not just once, several times. He had driven past them. He could have turned around and seen Holly a couple times with that shirt on. This blonde teen, I can't get her, you know, like, he's already got that heightened yeah. Whatever happens in their brain going on, and then Holly's there, you know, she's younger, but at that point, his brain is already switched into psycho mode. Maybe, yeah. Take what you can get when you're, when you're in that mode. I don't know what kind of DNA they have from the scene, but... I think, they, if they, I think they do have his DNA. Okay. Do they, they, they probably have his DNA because he's been in a house of corrections before for other things. 
but do they have his DNA from Brimfield? That's the question. That's the, that's the tie-in. I don't know. I mean, they're still they're still talking to labs, so mm-hmm. um, you know, potentially finding a DNA match is not totally out of the picture. But I think um, just waiting for technology to get that a little bit more advanced. Um, and I know the retired cops think it's. Yeah, uh, I think your brothers think so too, right? Yeah, well, my brother thinks it because, well, probably because the T-shirt and also because he thinks if anybody did this and they've kept their mouth shut all this long, it must just be one person that's just got no conscience. Because if it was more than one person involved, he feels like somebody would have grabbed the other person out by now. He's spot on about that. Yeah, if you have a conspiracy of people then who somehow colluded and decided that they were going to abduct this child that they happened to have seen, it just doesn't add up, especially with the teen girls. They saw one guy in a, in a beat up truck. And I would think most grown men wouldn't take particular notice of what a 10 year old girl on the side of the road, the details about her t-shirt. You thinking so that you thinking so too now, Leah? Well, very compelling. It's kind of hard to. It's really, I don't know. It's it's it's, it's convincing. I mean, I haven't really thought much about it until I've heard everything kind of laid out. But mm. the T-shirt is the big piece with that with him. Kind of hard to. So you said mm. in nine minutes, how many cars drove by and even saw her at all? You know. It's weird because sometimes I'll see kids by the side of the road or kids unattended. And in my own head, I'm making a mental note of describing what the kids look like because of this. But I don't think a normal person notices what a 10-year-old girl on the side of the road is wearing. That's because so, a person doesn't even really notice a 10 year old, you know, guy driving down the road. Or they see a, a kid up by themselves on the side of the road and they don't think much of it because they haven't dealt with it in their lives. He was supposed to be just a guy who's driving around trying to get work. So you're not somebody who's like really taking a close look and noting details of a 10 year old girl who's hanging out waiting for the puppies to come out. Did they, did, was it confirmed that he approached the, the people with the cement truck? Like, I mean, maybe back then you didn't have job searches on the internet. So maybe no, that was didn't. just a way to get a job, but that yeah, seems I mean, it odd was, to me. It's, it is odd, but you know, you're right. They didn't have the internet back then. And so, and here's a guy who just kind of operates by the seat of his pants anyway. And so he sees the cement truck and decides he's going to follow it, thinking that could lead to an opportunity. There's also the fact that if you're driving up and down Allen Road, I mean, she would have to be standing out of South Shore Drive, you know, because, I mean, it's really like a turn there. So unless she was really standing out almost where the dirt turns to pavement, like almost on Allen Road, you wouldn't even see her, you know, to notice a T-shirt driving by unless you went down South Shore Drive. But, I mean, if you're just driving up and down Allen Road and she's on South Shore Drive, you're not seeing her unless you're on South Shore Drive. Unless he drove past and her cousin and turned around at the, at the end of Allen, at the end of South Shore Drive, just did the turnaround right there. That's right. And he then he would have seen her. 
Yeah, then that makes it even more compelling when you just think if you're just somebody cruising down Allen Road and you go by South Shore Drive and even if you look down and see, you know, hey, there's a kid standing 10 or 15 feet down looking into that yard by the fence, you're not going to see the front of their shirt. You know, she's not going to be standing and displaying the front of her shirt for somebody just driving by to even notice that. Yeah, she's 20 yards in. Alone to me is kind of. She was probably standing up by the fence yeah. you just wouldn't have a head-on view of her teacher thank you she's not just standing out on the side of the road so that's you know, not that's it, what i'm saying that's what i'm saying mm-hmm. and and there was only there's only nine minutes at best yeah that that um the window of opportunity was there well, maybe it's a good chance to you know somehow cultivate some kind of connection with his daughter just be like you know maybe you can just get him to write you a note as he's dying (laughs) you know just get it off your chest dad (laughs) Hmm. yeah he's gonna get somebody somebody interview him that's gonna feel bad for him Mm -hmm. just like he feels he doesn't feel bad for himself but like to justify it in his mind. He needs someone that kind of agrees with his justification. Well, maybe he'll have a change of heart. Confess. Let's return to the February 2023 press conference with Hampton DA, Anthony Galani. Do you think this case will be solved eventually, either by DNA or through a confession? I know this case is going to be solved, and we'll see how that comes. There's various ways we're going to solve it, or could solve it. And I have every confidence that we're going to get there. 